Hello, everyone, and welcome back to From the Front Row. We are joined today by Dr. Aneagbo, an assistant professor here at our very own College of Public Health here at Iowa. Dr. Aneagbo is an applied social scientist with extensive research experience, working collaboratively with local and international institutions on HIV-related research in the United States, South Africa, Nigeria, and most recently, Zambia. Recently, Dr. Adeagbo has developed additional research interests in bioethics and non-communicable diseases. My name is Adriana Kaczkowski, and it's your first time with us here today. Welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both inside and outside the field of public health. So before we get into the topic of today's episode, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, um, thank you very much, uh, Andrena, and a good morning to you and your listeners. Um, yes, uh, my name is Adiago Oluwafem Atone, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Community and Behavior here at the College of Public Health at the University of Iowa. Um, yes, that's why now. Yes. No, we're we're so happy to have you here today. So, what brought you to the College of Public Health here at Iowa? What? What? I mean, if I quote him by year, mentioned. But prior to my current position, yeah, I was a research fellow at the University of South Carolina Handler School of Public Health. Yeah. Is there anything that you especially like about Iowa from North Carolina or just work that brought you here? Yeah, thank you for the question. I think I was going somewhere else, right? But when, <laughs> when I visited Iowa, I just loved the people who were coming to me. From the driver to the you know, faculty members that I met. And also the environment, also people that were you know, introduced to me. It was really kind of, you know, heartwarming for me. It melted my heart. And it's like, yeah, and when I go back, so South Carolina, so I about a lot about, about the weather. Mm-hmm. I also read about it. <laughs> and I was somewhat scared, but one of my colleagues is then, oh, I mean, there is no bad weather. Only bad <laughs> clothing. I was like, okay, that's that big, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I just made a decision. So the environment, beautiful environment. We love nature, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, greens everywhere. And yeah, it was, it was good when we visited and I just made up my mind. Okay, let's try Iowa. That means let's, let me experience the, you know, Essex. Yeah. Compared to South Carolina. I only saw snow once in South Carolina. Really? Well, you, you're in for a treat for Iowa winter. It'll, at least it'll get really nice when the leaves change, but. Then you might be thinking twice about the Iowa adventure. No, I experienced it this year. So, yeah, I've, yeah, I joined the university last year. So. Oh. <laughs> yes. Can you tell us about your research experience in different countries? I know you spent time in the United States, South Africa, Nigeria, and Zambia. So how have these different experiences really shaped your perspective on global health? Yeah, thank you very much for your question. I think I'll, I'll stop. From South Africa, because, you know, I conducted most of my past studies in South Africa. I studied there as well. So I'll start from there. I lived, you know, most of my life in South Africa. I, I don't know how much you know about South Africa. You know, as of 2021, South Africa had 60.1 million people in terms of the population. 
and they had 13.7 percent HIV prevalence rates, hmm. and that gives you like 8.2 million, an estimated 8.2 million people living with HIV in 2021, and that's slightly more than 4 million people were on antiretroviral treat therapy, which is HIV treatment, hmm. and and also, South Africa has the largest HIV programs in the world because everyone, because of the level of, you know, the prevalence of HIV there, everyone wants to conduct studies there. And for me, my journey into, into HIV research is kind of quite funny, but and I'll still talk about it, you know. So I, I conducted research in both rural and urban areas, trying to improve people's health, health skills, especially in young people and men in, in South Africa. And staying in Johannesburg, just like Chica, right? You don't really know much. You thought you knew a lot about HIV because I was privileged to work with one of the largest HIV institutes in the world, that's which reproductive health. And I learned a lot from them and stayed in Johannesburg all my life, studied in Johannesburg. I told, yeah. man, this is, you know, this is it. Yeah. So I got this position and I started questioning myself because I got another position in a province with the highest number of people living with HIV in South Africa till today. Really? Yes. And I started thinking about HIV. Am I going to contract HIV? What's going to happen to me? Because no, I was going to go to rural, not your, this is not rural. I'm talking deep rural area, deep yeah. rural. And I took up the challenge. I love challenges. I just said to my partner, she was like, have you thought about it? I was like, oh, let me try. Yeah. And I thought about it. I said, okay, I'll do it. I went into a rural area at the epicenter of HIV. And I started looking at the social aspect of HIV, other than the medical aspect of things. And started looking at what are the drivers of HIV, really amongst young women. Because till today, despite all these programs in South Africa, over, we still have over 200,000 new HIV infections every year in South Africa. So I started asking questions and I, you know, I did conducted a lot of research with young people I mentioned earlier. And one of the, one of the, one of the things that we tried to explore is this was the concept of blessing and blesser. I don't know how much you know about the blessing and the blesser. So the blessing usually is a young woman deprived young woman, mostly black woman, you know, disadvantaged in terms of financial resources. And some of the things they probably need might be someone like, oh, I want iPhone 15, you know, and they were, we have this older male with the money to buy the iPhone 15 for this younger female. They won't buy it. Uh, but a sexual transaction it's uh, kind of, there's power imbalances there, right? The man, oftentimes, they don't use condom. And the, the young gay is you know, less likely to negotiate safe sex in that context. And that brings you to this, what we call social esteem theory. I say the more resources you have, the more power you have in a relationship and to make, you know, decisions as well. So we discovered, you know, when we conducted final genetics of HIV, we discovered that these young women would take some of these material resources, financial resources from the older male, who would give them sexual transactions that they might contract HIV 
from that instant. And they will go back to have sex with their boyfriend as a younger male. And some of those boys too, they don't use, they don't like using condom. And so the cycle continues of HIV transmission. And you start asking questions, start thinking about this, you know, the socioeconomic aspect of things, the gender aspect of things, and how do we do this? And also, we still have been, so the dynamic of condom use is, is also very interesting because mm. there's a lot of programs in South Africa where you, you can access free condoms yeah. in, in rural areas as well. But we have, you know, I conducted a lot of research with young males and older males in South Africa. And so what that will tell you that condoms keep their rashes. And at some point, there's also an issue of fatalism, like, well, something will kill a man, whether it's HIV or something, it will kill a man. Also, we notice alcohol and drug abuse in taverns. Yeah. And in these taverns, there's a lot of transactional sex going on too. And oftentimes, they don't negotiate success because people are actually drunk and have sex, you know, without condoms and things about, things about it, cycle, you know, HIV. And also my research in South Africa also shows that people are actually more afraid of HIV, not really HIV testing or treatment in particular, in HIV identity. Yeah. Yeah. The stigma associated with that? Exactly. The stigma. And it's, you know, you know, it gives them that issue that Everyone is afraid of the HIV identity, and especially male. And some men do not want to lose their social status because if found with the HIV positive, and some of the you know the stigma in the community is very very right. Yeah. And some even people, young people and men, they don't go to the clinics because if you go to if you go to a certain place in the clinic, the building within the clinic, people know that you actually go for HIV testing, treatments, or whatever. And the stigma, even the person that's going to attend to you is a member of community. People don't trust them. There's issue with trust and all of it. So it's kind of confidentiality. Yeah. Yes, complicated. And for men to living with HIV and not on antiretroviral therapy, issue of waiting time. Some people probably go. They will visit the clinic in the morning and they will leave at four p.m. They wouldn't. They wouldn't want to do that because they really need to provide for their family. And also the issue of, there was a study we conducted recently, and we were like, we offered financial incentive to everyone if you, to test for HIV. And if you found to be positive, another extra double financial incentive for you to link to treatment, and we'll facilitate your accident. We would help you with transportation. If you don't have transport, all of those things, people didn't link, especially men, they didn't link to kids. I will wait back to them after 30 days or 40 days. See, why not? They're like, well, I have a lot of problems than HIV. Food insecurity. Yeah. I don't have, what do you want? I don't have balanced diet. I don't have money to eat balanced diet. I know I've heard from people that when you take these medications, you have bad dreams, even the side effects of things. And, you know, if you look at some, if you put two together, if you look at everything, it tells you that poverty is a major determinant of it. And we don't usually talk about it much. In my global health plans this semester, I share some lights on poverty as a determinant of health, you know, for people to see how it connects to every aspect of our life. So my, that's my South African study. So in Nigeria too, you notice 
over Nigeria population is over 220 million, right? And an estimated 1.9 million people were living with HIV last year in, in Nigeria. And also the issue of HIV disclosure and stigma is right in Nigeria. Because this kind of support you get if you disclose your HIV status, people will technically move away from you, including your family members. They won't use wow. the same spoon as you. They won't. In fact, you might even get physically abused because of your HIV status. Yeah, we conducted a study amongst almost 4,000 people in 2021, representing to the Nigerian government last year. And, you know, people lost their jobs because of their HIV disclosure when they disclosed their HIV status. And so it's really women that disclosed to their partner, disclosed to their partner, you know, they got beaten mercilessly and so on. Their family disowned them and, you know, all of the, so there's all the issue around stigma. It's yeah. mostly for even the South Africa, Nigeria, around HIV, even Zambia, the president, you know, of Zambia declared that Zambia as a Christian country, right? And it's in 1996, it was, it was interesting, Zambia constitution, that it is a Christian country. And it gives, and you know, then quickly go out a bit. The population, it's like slightly above 20 million population with 11.1 HIV prevalence rates amongst adults, 15 to 59 years, age 15 to 59 years. That gives you around, around you know, 2.2 million people, you know, but it's, you know, it was 14.6 prevalence rates in children. And so wow. it's, it's kind of still high too. So going back to the constitution, the declaration of Christianity, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, as Zambia is a Christian country, and this is established by the constitution, 1996 constitution, this does not mean that they do not have other religious traditions in the country. It's just a wing of, you know, enacting its power, right? And mm-hmm. these actually are a kind of serious effects on the way that the clinicians treat uh, the sexual and gender minorities in the country because they believe homosexuality is foreign. And some of yeah. these guys will go to the clinic for siblings. And you imagine one clinician coming out and say, oh, one of them is here. That kind of thing. The stigma is also right. So yeah. it's also. I'll link it to the United States now, my research. And right. oftentimes you always think, oh, United States have all the, you know, some of these countries, they do not have a lot of money for the healthcare uh, system, right? Okay. And also when it is present, the issue of access is a problem, right? And also transportation, all of those things, and uh, food insecurity. In the United States, you would think with the level of uh, educa- HIV education and everything, that there won't be this problem. But it's a lie. When you go to the, so the U.S. South, you see them. Like I did some research in South Carolina. HIV stigma is also very right, especially in rural areas. And also there is another issue of representation. People like me, many amongst uh, sexual gender minority, we do not have people that represent the group. A lot of people that represent the group within the healthcare system, especially in rural areas. And also is your race plays an important role too. And poverty also is also a key factor. Yes, US is more outplaying compared to others, better road than and you would think, okay, there won't be problem. But halfness also affects our lifestyle. 
how we behave you know, in terms of our health behaviors. Other than HIV, U.S. Muslims are, you know, more than a million people were living with HIV. I've often currently living with HIV in the U.S. Lifestyle also brings about the issue of non-communicable diseases, right? You know, your diabetes, you know, other chronic diseases. So, yeah. and if you look at it generally, income determines how the kind of health care that you assess in the U.S., how do you assess it? Its availability also enables. So poverty, you, looking at the U.S., which is high-income countries, right? And some yeah. of these low- and middle-income countries, you know, I've talked about, you'll see that they have something in common, stigma, poverty, yeah. despite the average of one. And this has really shaped my global health perspective when we talk about health disparities and uh, inequities, right? Because it's, you know, poverty are present in high-income countries and lower middle-income countries. And also the issue of how race, socioeconomic status, availability and location of health services impacts population health outcomes. And to reduce you know, health disparities and inequities, we need to understand what health resources have in different contexts, yeah. right? And how do we allocate health resources equitably? Also, we should ask ourselves this question. Can the population mostly in need of such resources assess them easily, right? And mm-hmm. uh, is the savings patient center? So these are the questions we're going to start. And these are the kind of questions that I asked myself, my, you know, global health research. Let's say, is this all about the NMIC? What about the United States? How do we access health services, whether in the U.S., whether in South Africa or in Zambia or in Nigeria. So, yeah, so this has really helped me and shaped my global perspective about, you know, health-related research, especially HIV. Yeah, you really hear your passion and why you chose to like focus your research on this. And it's so unique. And I really see that stigma really sits at, like, the center of so many of these issues, which is... I guess disappointing that I really hope that really find a way to reduce or bridge that. So how do you see the role of interdisciplinary collaboration in addressing complex public health challenges, such as those related to HIV AIDS, as well as non-communicable diseases? Well, thank you very much for your question. You know, now we're talking about interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, which I think it's very important. Quickly, I will quickly talk about my my background, because I have a very interesting background, and I think it will also help some students or, you know, aspiring public health researchers out there to know that you can bring, you know, it doesn't matter where you're coming from, you can be useful in public health research. So I started, you know, I did philosophy in my honors, my undergrads, and I started developing interest in medical ethics. Everyone believes philosophy is abstract. Yes, I agree. (laughs) Right. Uh, but it depends on how you see and how you apply. And for my master's, I did migration studies. And I started to look at the nexus between migration and health. And that was just for my interest. And in my PhD program, I intentionally looked at, that was in sociology, right? Yeah. I intentionally looked at how resources, whether it's financial resources, whether it's race, gender, how these resources play an important role 
in decision-making in intimate relationships, which could also be linked to health. And so look at all of these in general, and you, it's really helped. And you will see how interdisciplinary, how it plays important role in my own career, right? And I was still talking about how it could play additional, you know, more roles in global health. In, in March 2005, so prior to 2005, the focus on some of these global health issues has been very medical in nature, right? Yeah. But in, in March 2005, World Health Organization established the Commission on Social Determinants of Health, right? It was established in And why was it established? Well, it was because they see that some, they discovered that some of these health issues, they have the social parts of them. And the book who had read the social part, talking about race, talking about gender, talking about stigma, anything, we would be able to address some of the health disparities that we see and also inequities. And that was why it was established. And what is the role of interdisciplinary collaboration in this? This is, let's take for, let's take for instance, environmental issues. Let's talk okay. about the terminal problems. One, environmental issue. I'm talking about air pollution, right? Food or water yeah. contamination. Some of my colleagues doing research in water or in epidemiology would be useful here. We can come together and look at, you know, experts in environmental issues. And also behavioral aspect of means is psychologists would be useful in looking at excessive smoking, drug abuse amongst young people or everyone. Also, biological determinants where epidemiologists could also come in here where we look at smallpox, measles, plagues, and you know, issue of mental too, counselors, psychology. So all of us, including clinicians, talking about pre-exposure prophylaxis, post-exposure prophylaxis, HIV treatment. It's no, so it's all about coming together mm -hmm. to improve population's health, which is our primary goal. Though we all will bring our expertise together to be able to do that. So that's right. Interplanetary collaboration is very, very important. And yes. I think I that's, I, yeah. I, you, you said that truly beautifully. It's part of why I think like our purpose of college public health is so nice. We have people from epidemiology, we have people focusing on policy, people focusing on environment. It's so nice being able to come together with everyone's like uh, expertise okay. from different angles to look at a problem. So I, I definitely agree with what you've said. So I know from your bio, you've mentioned interest in bioethics and non-communicable diseases. How do ethical considerations play a role in your research and what are some emerging issues in not communicable disease prevention and management. Oh, thank you very much, John, for your question. And in everything we do, like it draws back to my philosophical background, right? Because a lot of say, well, your you know epistemology, ethics, yeah. uh, you know, and other things as well. Yeah. And this is about morals and ethics is key in global health research. I think, it, and there are some. I'll give you an example. There are some. You know, ethical challenges in global public health now. One of the such is the stage. I don't know if you know it. And this is, this is, this, the terms refers to exploitative research activities conducted by some researchers 
as well as short-term relationships with research communities, especially in low- and middle-income countries. And all we mean is some people come into your community, gather the data, and go elsewhere and start publishing the data. You know, the community, don't, the communities do not get a benefit anything. From, yeah, from when they the, don't make sure it's not, if it's not sustainable, it doesn't really help the community. So, so excellent. So, and that's what we're saying that such an approach is not only detrimental to communities involved, right? But it's also erodes that trust within the larger scientific community. And I believe, and this is what I've been doing with some other colleagues, you know, community engagement and in terms of, you know, looking at a community engaged research perspective is key to addressing this issue of helicopter research in global health. And that's, that's been my interest. And also, it will also help us to magnify the voice, to help magnify the voices of marginalized or underrepresented groups. And also, because we researchers always think we know it all. And I think community engaged research, and I believe to be, to be humble, culturally, humility is important. And also our ability, and this community engagement, research will also help us to start flipping the narrative, to flip the narratives about what the expert is in the global health research. The community is the expert. Communities are experts of their knowledge. Mm-hmm. We are only there to support, to learn, and to engage with them, and to help magnify the forces and put it out there. But oftentimes we claim the knowledge, and we claim we take the glory. But I, I think it is unethical to do that. So in order to have a kind of, you know, a responsible research conduct, we should be able to involve community. Let them be the expert of their knowledge. And recently, I, I organized a panel session uh, on community-engaged research in global health, some of the mm-hmm. issues, and how to address them at the University of Oxford in the UK during the Oxford Global Health and Bioethics International Conference in June this year. Mm-hmm. So this is the way, uh, you know, we're trying to do that. And in terms of imagining issues in NCDs, if you look at the current data, NCDs are the causes, you know, the major causes of death globally now. Yeah. If you look at the leading causes of death, one to, to think, I think hate out of there will be non communicable disease. And an estimated 41 million people die annually from non communicable disease. And that is 74% of global deaths. <laughs> and this is an issue. You, although, we, we, you know, a lot of research, you know, has shown, you know, some, that some hence prevention and treatment, you know, interventions, right. Uh, but there's still a kind of debt of research on NCD's care delivery approaches, cost-effectiveness, and larger implementation research, especially in low- and middle-income countries. My colleagues and I, uh, and, you know, College of Medicine in South Africa, uh, you know, recently published a scoping review protocol on this. Uh, we're currently working on a scoping uh, review and also our research, your know, potential research on these uh, in LMIC. Yeah, so thank you. I hope I'm able to answer the question. Oh, thank you so much. 
I guess this is a question that could hopefully help any aspiring students when it comes to public college of public health or just generally. But what advice do you have for aspiring public health researchers, especially those interested in addressing health disparities in improving population health and research resource and screen settings? Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Advice. I'll start with the practice, right? They're learning. Uh, they're learning. My advice for them would be, one, if you aspire to address health disparities, improve, you want to improve population health and resource conflict settings, you should learn both theories and practice from school and learn the application of some of the concepts in public health, global, how you apply them in practice, which I think it's very, very important. Yeah, it's, it's difficult, but they are very helpful. Just, you know, to learn all of this. And yeah, also it is okay to be empathetic and reflexive because oftentimes we ignore our privileges as well when we go to a country like South Africa, South Africa, seeing some of these young people drinking alcohol in the morning, Vibing to music in the tavern, you know, and we know that, you know, there's hiring to HIV infections amongst them. Is it, we can easily judge people doing drugs, but we need to understand where they're coming from. What led them to that? So that's where the empathy comes in. Before you started, and also we should recognize our own privileges. See, in order for us to understand other people's background. So that is very, very important. And also, you must learn about the community. I lived here for some time to understand the community better. If I lived in that rural community for over three years that I spoke about. Yeah. And it was difficult. And then, you know, someone I had lived and seen all my life. All my life. I was born in the city. I had lived in the city all my life. It was difficult for me. But I had that, but then, I appreciated what it means to wake up in the morning, get into my kitchen, take like a lo two loaves of bread, make some nice tea. Some people couldn't afford that. Even yeah. sometimes on the field, I, you know, I bought people food. You know, it's, so it's okay to live there because cultural immunity, it is important. And coming back to our research, you want to be a researcher, you need to understand the community. And you need to understand that the community needs tailored interventions. Just because something had worked in the United States doesn't mean it's going to work. Something that had worked in rural Iowa doesn't mean it's going to work in rural South Africa. Yeah, so, so part of it could work. But how do we adapt it and make it more culturally acceptable in other countries. And lastly, which I think the most important, and this is the driving factor for me, too, okay. is that they must have a moral commitment to social justice. When you have a moral commitment to social justice, irrespective of the challenges that you face in your, in the, in your exploration of global health, okay. or, will, that will keep them going. And talking about social justice, we're talking about 
how do we close the gap in health disparities, right? Yeah. And then the health inequity, how do we allocate resources according to needs and not wants? Mm-hmm. And this will also go into an issue around policy. Mm-hmm. So the moral commitment to social justice is very important and it's a driving factor, is a driving factor for everything that I'm doing in global. I think like what you said, the community needs to get, like that drive. Information have to be tailored to community needs. That's so profound. I like heard so many stories throughout my undergrad about how so many people have such amazing intentions. They really want to help a community and they go in with what they think the community needs. And then stories about how that backfires. I think that's it's such it feels like such a simple thing to say, but community, the needs of the community, that really needs to interventions need to be tailored towards that each community is so different and so unique and community members need to be asked about like what they feel that their needs are especially not those from outside researchers it's about the community your research covers a wide array of factors including class race gender education violence substance abuse employment status so how do these factors kind of intersect and influence individual health outcomes yeah, well, thank you for the question. You know, you notice that I've been talking about some of my research in different countries. Now, for this, I'll, I'll limit to South, South Africa. I just want to give you a kind of scenario of a young, of a young man, right? Now, a young high, school, high schooler who accidentally or intentionally impregnated someone. In that context, he drops out of school because he needs to provide for the child. Because definitely, and this is basically where already been living in poverty. And the education, we know this is an age. And when we did drop out of school, I'm talking about race, I'm talking about black male now, in terms of race and gender, talking about educational status and employment status. Someone without much education cannot attract high-paying jobs. They yeah. do many jobs just to sustain them. And, you know, their child. And we see a lot of this in rural South Africa, not only for the male, also for the females. They drop out of school. But it's very common among the men. They drop out of school and the female, because of the stigma attached to teenage pregnancy, they drop yeah. out of school too. And that limits the opportunity. And for them to go back, it's always difficult. I had yeah. some of these guys who worked with me as research assistant and, you know, in, in South Africa there. And some of them before, it takes only less than 1% of them to go back to school uh, to change their life. And they continue to live in poverty. And this affects also their health outcome. But this is the same young man, a young man who do anything to make money mm-hmm. and a blesser could come in to meet a young female the well i can give you some money to take care of your child i'm not using condom and i'm having sex with you i'll give yeah. you so much she would do it <laughs> and also someone who lives in poverty you know definitely they are the kind of health outcomes and some of these guys even the availability of their services is very far from where they live Get money for transportation to assess 
health services and these are more like quality health services is also difficult. So put everything together, it affects their, you know, you know, health outcomes. And yeah. also another example is that we give is intimate partners violence. I think, you know, South Africa is very right in South Africa. And South Africa has one of the highest femicide rates in the world. And yeah, and if you look at that, you're, you know, a lot of research has shown that women, we are the, we are the experience violence where eight times more likely to contract HIV when compared to women who are not. Really? Wow. So you see how some of these factors play important role in terms of gender or educational attainment, substance use too. You use, you're under the influence of alcohol, drug, conduct without sex without conduct, definitely exposing yourself to some XTIs. HIV is, you know, is kind of thing. So all of these things, they have a role to play for people's health outcomes. Yeah, like the way how they like they build upon each other and really increase someone's risk, especially so to kind of round it out. What is one thing you thought you knew but were later wrong about? And this could be truly about anything. Well, um, probably I was to go back to me living in Johannesburg for rural KwaZulu Natal. You know, I thought I knew a lot about HIV when I was in Johannesburg because I worked with a lot of clinicians. I would, and while in Johannesburg, I was working in different provinces too. You know, I was yeah. doing research in different provinces, but we, I, I was staying in Johannesburg, but I traveled to different provinces, but I thought mm-hmm. I knew a lot about HIV and so, you know, South Africa's socioeconomic status and how that plays some of these factors that I mentioned. How the people in people's lives, I thought I had it figured out until I lived yeah. here for over three years of my life. I could tell, easily tell you that more than 50% of my colleagues, you know, that some of my colleagues that I worked with in the past were actually living with HIV. I didn't even know. And I thought yeah. I knew a lot about HIV where I was coming. And so I got to see drought, a lot of social factors, a lot of social determinants of some of these, you know, diseases, including non-communicable uh, diseases as well. And like I say, I mentioned poverty is at the center of it all. And yeah. even if you look at gaps in income in the United States, people who are the, who are earning the most, the 1%, at right. the bottom, the life, is, the life expectancy in between them is probably, it's a lot, it's probably over 10 years. And that tells you a lot. And that also plays a lot of role in people who have husbands. And, you know, in life, everything that goes around, the access, everything around, around the island. So I think if we can start shedding more light on poverty, right. as it's because it plays significant role in the primary prevention, secondary prevention, tertiary pre- prevention, and else, yeah, it plays an important role. If you start Shed more light on how it's created that yeah. disparity, you know, health disparity too. Disparity in equal is associated with health disparities and inequities. And even if there are resources, in the case of the United States, right? Okay. We have the resources readily available 
But how are those resources allocated? Yeah. Who have access to them? Who, you know, how many people have access to them? So how are people treated within this healthcare system too? This is your stigma. So there's a lot to some of this. So I thought I knew a lot about HIV, but when I got to the rural area, I was like, okay, I had to relearn everything. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Like how different every community is. Even HIV is not the same that every community really affects the community, the effects of poverty, the effect of how resources are allocated. That's so important and necessary to look at. So I just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Adeangelo, for spending time this kind of a rainy morning talking to me. I really appreciate it. And your experience and your passion, it really shows. So this was Adriana, and this is From the Front Row. That's it for our episode this week. Big thank you to both Dr. Adiagbo and to Adriana for joining us on this episode today. This episode was hosted and written by Adriana and edited and produced by Lauren Lavin. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, friends, or anyone interested in public health. Have a suggestion for our team? You can reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take care.